Hey guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Oddity Podity. I think we can all agree that music is magic. It's a universal language. We define ourselves and judge others harshly by their taste or lack thereof in music. It can even be a deal breaker when it comes to relationships. Maybe that's because every civilization and culture throughout time has used it to communicate feelings and emotions. To me, music really is a gift from the heavens, which may explain why we sometimes treat those who master it like gods. But humans are not gods, no matter how great they look in a pair of skin-tight leather pants. In fact, it almost seems like the faster a musician soars to godlike status, the more likely they are to be slapped out of the sky like Icarus was when he flew too close to the sun. Today, I want to share with you some stories that highlight connections between music and the paranormal. They involve some of the greatest names in rock history, and some you may never have heard of because their lights were put out way too soon. So, put on your coolest pair of shades, whip out your can of Aquanet Superhold, and get ready to boogie down with me in a disco inferno of the supernatural. Let's burn that mother down. me at all or even just follow Oddity Potty on social media, you know that I'm a huge music fan. I come from a very musical family. My grandfather was a talented guitarist and singer and he passed this trait on to my aunts and uncles and my brothers and my cousins. My dad and all of his brothers were amazing guitarists as well. One of my cousins is even a Grammy award-winning musician. Me though? The talent skipped me. Just skipped right the heck over me. I might have been Grandpa's favorite, but I did not get his guitar fingers or his velvet voice. Heck, even my speaking voice is questionable. Since I seem to be the only one in the family who didn't get the musical gene, it's always been especially fascinating to me how someone's brain allows them to play multiple instruments and sing and dance all at once, when sometimes it's a struggle for me to eat chips and watch TV at the same time. But don't be surprised if I burst into ugly, ugly song today. If you hear something that sounds like a bobcat in labor, it's just me singing. You've been forewarned. Because of this, I spent a lot of time going to shows. Since COVID pretty much ruined that for all of us, I was super stoked when the Foo Fighters started touring again. The Foos are one of my all-time favorite bands, and I'd hoped to catch them in Vegas in December, but that fell through. When it was announced that they were headlining Memphis in May, I was fully prepared to pay a god-awful amount of money for seated tickets, but so was everyone else, and that fell through too. On the night of Friday, March 25th, I was trying to go to sleep, but I was also fretting about how and when I'd fit a food show into my packed schedule. I had a few dates in mind, and I almost got up to double-check my calendar so I could just go ahead and buy some tickets and get it off my mind. I even grabbed my phone and turned the flashlight on so that I could see to turn on the bedside lamp. But I'm a slug, and the effort of picking up the phone winded me, so I decided to stay in bed and figure it out in the morning. I turned the flashlight off, and I put the phone down, and it immediately dinged. I look over, and I see a message from one of my coworkers. Now, it's 11.06 p.m. on a Friday night, so I cannot imagine what this guy's texting me about. Open the message, and it's him telling me that Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters has died. I could not believe it. 
Taylor was such a bright ray of sunlight. One of my favorite things he did, aside from the foos, was when he and Dave and the rest of the band covered all of the BG songs as the DGs. If you haven't experienced that, please hit pause on this podcast right now and go look it up on YouTube. You won't be sorry. Anyway, it was just awful. And later I thought kind of uncanny that thoughts of Taylor and the Foos had entered my mind right around the same time that the band was announcing his passing on social media. Those thoughts had kept me awake and had almost pushed me to go online where I would have learned of his passing. And as it was, they kept me awake long enough for my coworker to inform me. The announcement of Taylor's death and him entering my thoughts at nearly the same time might not have been related at all. I figured that any given time, there are probably hundreds of thousands of people in the world who are thinking about the Foo Fighters and Taylor's rendition of shadow dancing. The term synchronicity comes to mind. Oxford languages define synchronicity as, quote, the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection, end quote. Synchronicity also happens to be the name of my favorite album by the police, which is sort of a synchronicity in itself. So when I couldn't get the foos out of my mind on the night that Taylor Hawkins died, was I picking up on some sort of collective cry of psychic anguish from the world? Or was it just synchronicity? I read a book called More Haunted Rock and Roll by Matt Swain because, of course, I did. And in it, the author talks about this concept of synchronicity and how it's played out time and again in the world of music. Some of the things he talks about makes it hard to believe that supernatural forces were not at play. Then again, partying like a rock star can also give way to the musical motto, live fast and die young. The debauchery that comes with the territory of rock and roll lends itself to shortening one's lifespan. There are countless tales of misadventures of musicians that ended in death, but sometimes the events surrounding these tragedies really are almost supernatural in nature, like events that seem significantly related but cannot readily be explained. Synchronicity. Take, for example, the following Final Destination-like deaths of famous rock stars. If you're not familiar with the movie Final Destination, it's about this group of youngins who embark on an airplane ride to Paris for their senior trip. One of the guys on the flight has a premonition that the plane will explode. He freaks out and is removed from the plane along with a handful of other students. As they watch their plane take off, it suddenly explodes in the sky. Although the group that deplaned are spared, one by one they eventually die in freak unexplained ways. There are clues as to how each will die, but one has to pay especially close attention to figure them out. On a side note, don't watch this movie unless you're prepared to have a panic attack every time you're stuck in traffic behind a logging truck. The members of the legendary rock band Leonard Skinner met their ends in a similarly bizarre fate as the Final Destination characters. On October 20th, 1977, the band boarded a Convair CV240 private passenger plane that was headed to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They were touring in support of their latest album, which was called Street Survivor. The cover of the Street Survivor album is almost prophetic in nature. It shows the band standing shoulder to shoulder surrounded by flames. Guitarist Steve Gaines stands in the center of the group and is almost completely engulfed. His eyes are closed as though in death, and his hair and beard look like they're on fire. There's one song on the album that especially stands out in the wake of what would later happen. The song is called That Smell, and the lyrics contain phrases like, The angel of darkness is around you, 
and the smell of death surrounds you and say you'll be all right come tomorrow, but tomorrow might not be here for you. About 65 miles north of Baton Rouge, flames began to shoot out of the plane's right engine. Given the top speed of a Convair CV240, the plane was only about 15 minutes from its destination. It was so close to making it. Although the pilots attempted an emergency landing, the plane crashed in a heavily wooded swamp in Gillsburg, Mississippi. I've told you all about the killer tree lines in Mississippi, and they did a number on the plane, pretty much ripping it to shreds. Miraculously, though, only six of the 26 people on board died. In addition to the pilot and co-pilot, Leonard Skinner lead singer Ronnie Van Zant, guitarist Steve Gaines, his wife and backup singer Cassie Gaines, and the road manager Dean Kilpatrick were killed on impact. In a 2021 interview with Forbes magazine by Jim Clash, the band's drummer Artemis Powell details what happened next. Artemis was severely injured, but he managed to pull himself from the wreckage and hike for about 40 minutes through the swamp until he came to a pasture full of cows. In his estimation, cows meant people because someone had to feed them, and he needed to find those people. Remember, this was way before cell phones, and Artemis was going for help the old-fashioned way. But when Artemis finally found the people who owned those cows, death immediately tried to take him out once again. Because the farmer whose door Artemis practically broke down while begging for help shot him in the shoulder. Luckily, the farmer was a bad aim because Artemis lived to tell the tale. And what a tale he told. He spoke of Ronnie Van Zant having a premonition about his own death, saying, quote, Ronnie knew his destiny. He told me in Tokyo, Japan, that he would never live to see 30 and that he would go out with his boots on. At the time, I just said, oh, Ronnie, don't talk like that. You're going to live forever. Well, he was in a saddle with his boots on, going to a gig on Chur. Anyway, we got on the plane. He and I shook hands, and I could see in his eyes that he knew. End quote. I guess it's worth mentioning here that Ronnie Van Zant was less than three months away from his 30th birthday. Artemis went on to say that he had such a case of the willies that he and Ronnie sat in the back of the plane. But at some point, Ronnie decided to move to the front of the plane. As Ronnie made his way to the front, he stopped and shook hands with Artemis again. Artemis wanted to warn his friend not to go to the front of the plane, but in the end, he kept his worries to himself. But he remains convinced that Ronnie knew that his life would end that night before he even stepped foot on the plane. Death wasn't done with the survivors of the crash, though. Nine years later, in 1986, guitarist Alan Collins was paralyzed from the waist down in a car accident. He died almost exactly four years later, at the age of 37, from chronic pneumonia, which is a common complication of paralysis. Bassist Leon Wilkinson was seated next to Steve Gaines on the plane and narrowly escaped his bandmate's fate. He died in his sleep in 2001 at the age of 49. The coroner determined it was a natural death being caused by chronic liver and lung disease. Keyboardist Billy Powell died in 2009 at the age of 56 of a sudden heart attack. As of this writing, Artemis Powell and Billy Rossington are the only two band members who survived the crash and are still cheating death today. And had that farmer been a better aim, Artemis might not have made it on that list. While Ronnie Van Zant may have had a premonition about his death, guitar legend Jimi Hendrix took it one step further and wrote a song predicting his. In 1965, Jimmy recorded a song called The Ballad of Jimmy, 
The song goes like this, quote, Many things he would try, for he knew soon he'd die. Now Jimmy's gone. He's not alone. His memory still lives on, end quote. And the most poignant line in the song says, quote, Five years this, he said, he's not gone. He's just dead, end quote. Jimi Hendrix died on September 18th of 1970, five years after the song was recorded. Warren Zevon did kind of the same thing. While he's most famous for his 1978 classic tune, Werewolves of London, he recorded a song in 1987 that foretold of his own death 16 years in the future. The song is called The Factory, and the last four lines of the song say, quote, kicking asbestos in the factory. Breathing that plastic in the factory, punching out Chryslers in the factory, making polyvinyl chloride in the factory, end quote. Although Warren had never worked in a factory and had never been around asbestos for an extended period of time, he died in 2003 of mesothelioma, which is a cancer that's caused by exposure to asbestos. Yet another uncanny song-related death involves the original lead singer of ACDC, Bon Scott. On February 19, 1980, Bond had been out clubbing, and then he went to a jam session with his bandmates, Malcolm and Angus Young, where they were just beginning to record a new song for their upcoming album. You may have heard of it. The song was called Have a Drink on Me, and the album would be called Back in Black. While working on Have a Drink on Me, Bond said, don't mind if I do, and he had one too many. He managed to finish singing his last rendition of a song, which was cryptically called Ride On. Too drunk to drive, he decided not to ride on, instead climbing into his friend's Renault 5, which was parked outside, and opted to sleep it off inside the car. But he never woke up. Bon Scott died that night of acute alcohol poisoning. The next story is kind of a mashup of Final Destination, Death Prediction lyrics, and Wish Fulfillment Through Magic. Mark Boland, who was the lead singer of the pioneer glam punk band T-Rex, is probably most recognizable for the song, Get It On, Bang A Gong, Get It On. Sorry, the name of that song can only be sang and cannot be spoken. Anyway, Mark penned another tune that eerily foreshadowed his death. But before I tell you about it, I want to tell you how Mark himself believed that he was able to reach the height of fame that he did with T-Rex. Before his band made it big, Mark was a struggling musician. One night in the late 60s, he met this far-out, kooky kind of guy while he was working the club scene in France. Mark himself was a far-out, kooky kind of guy, so the two became instant friends. Mark ended up crashing at this guy's place, which happened to be deep in the woods. What he later described was something straight out of a Harry Potter movie. The guy, it turns out, was a wizard, complete with a pointy hat, a pet owl named Archimedes, a giant white Siamese cat, a golden eagle, some bats, and probably a couple of toads thrown in for good measure. This wizard taught Mark how to cast spells in both white and black magic. The spell casting seemed to have worked because shortly after this, T-Rex shot to astronomical fame. In 1970, Mark released a song called The Wizard, which laid out this story lyrically. He truly believed that this wizard was responsible for his success. But all that fame and fortune came with a price, as we all know that magic favors do. Perhaps this is why Mark had an aversion to cars. He flat out refused to drive, believing it would cause his untimely death. His wife, June, once tried to help him get past this fear. 
The one and only time she managed to get Mark behind the wheel for a lesson, he got so spooked that he swore driving off for good and made the women in his life chauffeur him around in cars that were owned by his record label instead. In 1972, Mark wrote a song called Solid Gold Easy Action, and it was a hit for T-Rex, topping the charts at number two. The song begins like this, quote, Life is the same and it always will be, easy as picking foxes from a tree, end quote. On September 16, 1977, Mark's girlfriend was chauffeuring him home from a nightclub when she hit a tree. Mark was killed instantly. The license plate on the car she drove was FOX661L. Whether or not you believe that magic and wizardry was responsible for his fame and fortune, you gotta admit that that's freaky. Mark was exactly two weeks shy of turning 30 when he died. Despite his best efforts, he could not escape the fate of dying in a car wreck, and the lyrics of Solid Gold Easy Action foretold it. If it really was a supernatural spell that helped him become a rock star, it seemed as though there was a time limit on it, much like the deal that Robert Johnson made with the devil. Apparently, there's a clause in these contracts that is often overlooked. It probably reads, live fast and die young. Probably want to get a lawyer to look over those contracts with the devil. T-Rex fans turn to the side of Mark's death into a shrine, and each year fans make pilgrimages to visit and leave offerings. So in this way, Mark kind of lives on forever in immortality. Rock stars acquiring their talents by supernatural means is a story that's often been repeated. Y'all know how much I like to reference Robert Johnson going to the crossroads to sell his soul to the devil in exchange for becoming a legendary blues singer all the time. Much like Mark Bolin, Robert Johnson didn't get to enjoy his fame for very long before the devil called his chip in. But magic isn't the only way one might acquire rock star status. Did you know that there's another famous Memphian who also believed that his career got a little help from powerful otherworldly forces? And not just any Memphian, the most famous Memphian, Mr. Elvis Aaron Presley himself. Elvis was born in Tupelo, Mississippi in 1935 in a two-room house that his father built. Back then, you didn't go to the doctor. The doctor came to you. And men weren't generally allowed in the room during a woman's labor. When Elvis's mother Gladys went into labor with him, the doctor arrived and Elvis's father, Vernon, was shooed out of the house. At 2 a.m., Vernon Presley stepped out onto the front porch and lit a cigarette. As he took a drag, he looked up into the sky, and suddenly a string of strange blue lights appeared. These lights were accompanied by a glowing object that hovered in the sky. As Vernon looked on in amazement, the doctor who was attending to Mama Presley noticed the strange lights flashing through the window of the home, too, and he went to have a look. He also saw the same blue lights and hovering objects in the night. Later, the doctor said that the light shot across the sky and then floated over the Presley home for a while before it zipped away. Soon after, Elvis Aaron was delivered alive, but his twin, Jesse Guerin, was stillborn. Throughout his life, these strange lights and objects kept showing up at different times in Elvis's life, as though they were following him and keeping track of him. The king came to believe that the UFOs were somehow guiding his life as well as monitoring it. For example, when Elvis was just a year old, a devastating tornado decimated the city of Tupelo. But somehow the Presley's little two-room home was untouched, which some attributed to some sort of supernatural protection. 
Larry Giller, who was Elvis's hairstylist and longtime friend, spoke to several media outlets about a time when the two were driving through Nevada and a UFO appeared in the night sky. Another time when they were all at Graceland, a series of strange lights suddenly appeared in a field behind the home. When Elvis saw those colorful lights hovering and dancing around outside, he was convinced that they were the UFOs again. I passed by Graceland about once a week, and I did not know that. I might have to investigate. Another rock star who believes that he acquired his talents from aliens is guitar legend Sammy Hagar. Sammy first achieved fame in the early 70s with the hard rock band Montrose, then shot to stardom as a solo artist in 1984 when he released the song that earned me all of my speeding tickets, I Can't Drive 55. He cemented his place in rock history the next year when he replaced David Lee Roth as the frontman for Van Halen. I love David Lee Roth, but in my opinion, Sammy is supreme. Musically, he took Van Halen to another level. You can fight me about that, but I will win. Anyway, long before all that stuff happened, in the late 60s, Sammy was just a skinny, poofy-haired California kid who dreamed of becoming a rock star. One day, as he lay around in his bed daydreaming about it, something strange happened. Sammy recounted his tale in an interview with Classic Rock Magazine, which has been repeated and requoted countless times. In it, he said, quote, I was just laying in bed when I felt something weird going on, like someone was tapping into my brain. At the time, I didn't know how to explain it, but they were downloading or uploading. That's the simplest way to put it, end quote. Sammy said that he became more and more aware of what was happening in his brain, and he also became conscious of who was responsible for it. He got up and looked out his bedroom window, and there in the distance, he saw two strange figures watching him. He said, quote, oh, I could see them, two guys on this little hillside. They were playing with a numerical code, but it wasn't from our numerical system. And then suddenly, this telepathic connection broke, and I could actually see them go back to their ship in a beam of light, zap, like lightning. For a second, there was an infinity of white. I couldn't move, and then it was over. It scared me nearly to death. It was an experience I couldn't understand, end quote. For a long while, Sammy couldn't think, couldn't even move. But he slowly came around and he began to visualize his future. He wrote a song called Space Station Number no. 5, which he eventually recorded with Montrose. He said, quote, My ego is telling me they've programmed you to be a rock star. So I used it as a tool to write songs about outer space and the future, songs like Crack in the World and Silver Lights, which is about the second coming of Christ, Jesus coming back in a spaceship. End quote. Sammy firmly believes that these aliens were responsible for programming his brain, which enabled him to become the guitar hero he is today. Whether that's truly the case or not, it doesn't matter because Sammy believes it and it's what he attributes to his life-changing success. I love this story because it gives me hope that aliens might reprogram my brain. I'm getting old and I could really use an upgraded operating system. Speaking of getting old, our next tale involves one of my all-time favorite bands, The Grateful Dead. If you've ever been to a Dead concert, it should not surprise you at all to learn that much of their music was influenced by extraterrestrials. The band's late lead singer, Jerry Garcia, claimed to have had several brushes with aliens in his lifetime. Jerry has spoken on this topic many times, and it was originally cited in a 1984 interview with Don Novello and another with New York DJ Dennis Elsis. 
The story has been repeated multiple times in multiple outlets, and a transcript of the recorded archive was posted in Grateful Ramblings. I'll put links up in the show notes if you want to look at it. But in the interviews, Jerry talks about a time about six or seven years earlier when he and David Freeberg of the band Jefferson Starship were driving down a desolate road one night when they turned a corner and were suddenly blinded by a bright light. The light filled the entire sky and it was coming from something that was hovering in the air. Jerry said, quote, It was like all of a sudden we came around the corner and the whole area was brightly lit. And there was this, it's hard to explain what it looked like. You know what it looked like? If you imagine the sky was a flat piece of like cardboard, poster paper, you know, flat black paper and you punched a hole in it. There was an enormous source of bright white light behind it, end quote. He went on to say that as light was coming out of the hole, smoke was coming out of it as well and being sucked back into it at the same time, if you can imagine that. They watched as this light grew dimmer and dimmer until it eventually faded away completely, leaving nothing behind but a green cloud. Jerry also said that in another encounter, he was abducted for two days and taken into a spaceship where he was examined by beings that looked like praying mantises. Ew. He says that after that, he had direct communication with a higher being or that the being actually opened another part of his mind because there's no way for him to filter out the information that it gives him. He said, quote, I've had direct communication with something which is higher than me. I don't know what it is. It, it may be another part of my mind. There's no way for me to filter it out because it's in my head. It's the thing that's able to take bits and pieces of things and give me large messages. To me, these messages are as clear as someone speaking in my ear. They're that well expressed, and they have all the detail that goes along with it. Sometimes it comes in the form of an actual voice, and sometimes it comes in the form of a hugeness, a huge presence that uses all of the available sensory material to express an idea. And when I get the idea, it's like, duh, I, oh, I get it. And it's accompanied by that hollow, mocking laughter. You finally got it, huh? Jeez, it's about time. For me, enlightenment works that way. But it's definitely a higher order of self-organization that communicates stuff, end quote. Jerry notes that his experiences with psychedelics enhanced his experience, but that after about a year, the messages ended, and he went on to create music with what he'd learned. Even though Jerry died of a heart attack in 1995 at the way too young age of 53, his surviving bandmates carry on his legacy to this day. In 2015, they began touring as dead in the company with John Mayer standing in for Jerry. I saw them in Dallas last fall, and it was definitely a psychedelic experience. There's one sequence where they do this jam session while the big screens display this outer space montage. It really does feel like you're traveling through space. I felt a little like my brain had been reprogrammed during it. Or maybe I just felt that way because most of the dead fans around me were elderly and brought along their legal marijuana prescriptions. Thank goodness everyone had to be vaccinated to attend that gig because I definitely inadvertently inhaled what many, many people were exhaling. Inadvertently, I tell you, on the Uber ride back to the hotel, I was terrified because it felt like the driver was going 150 miles per hour and we were flying off the highway. I was absolutely furious and I refused to tip him because I thought he was trying to kill us. And I was later told that this was not true at all, that the guy was actually driving a few miles below the speed limit and everyone in the car was laughing at me because I had a death grip on the seat and I was completely freaking out. 
No worries, though. They, they tipped him. Those prescriptions, I tell you, they can really warp your sense of reality. I felt like I was out of my head for about a week after that show. So there's no telling if what Jerry experienced was a result of a cosmic force or illicit chemicals. But again, it doesn't really matter. Jerry believed it, and it's what allowed him to create music that still touches us today. At this point, you've probably noticed that a lot of the musicians in these stories don't seem to live to ripe old ages. The rock star life doesn't necessarily lend itself to longevity, unless you're Keith Richards. The 27 Club is perhaps the most famous example of synchronicity in rock and roll. It's an absolutely uncanny coincidence that so many music stars have lost their lives at the exact age of 27. It's the one membership that rock stars don't want to earn, and I'd imagine that quite a few of them have breathed a sigh of relief on the morning of their 28th birthday. This occurrence is so pervasive that there have been scientific studies done to try and discern why it happens. In 2011, the British Medical Journal released a study concluding that there was no increase in the risk of death for musicians at the age of 27. While it did find an increased risk of death for musicians in their 20s and 30s, that risk wasn't limited to age 27. Similar findings were published in a 2015 article by The Independent, which also presented statistical evidence that musicians are not more likely to die at the age of 27. However, let me present evidence to the contrary. The legend of the 27 clubs begins with my man, Robert Johnson. As I've told y'all about 47 million times, Robert was the original blues man. Born in Mississippi, he was described as a below-average musician until one fateful night when it's said that he met the devil at the crossroad of Highway 61 and 49 near his home in Clarksdale. There, the two struck a deal. Robert's soul in exchange for the supernatural ability to play the blues like no one else on earth. The devil made good on his end of the bargain, and Robert's career took off overnight. He went from performing gospel tunes to singing about hellhounds, the devil, and black pits of emotional despair. Robert's family almost disowned him for switching musical genres to what they called Satan's music, but the general public loved him. He must not have read the fine print in that contract with the devil, though, because the good times did not last long, only about a year or so. Shortly after his 27th birthday, Robert Johnson was poisoned to death by the angry husband of one of his many girlfriends. Since his death, Robert's songs have been covered by other musical legends like Cream and the Rolling Stones. But in addition to his spectacular music catalog, Robert Johnson is also known as the inaugural member of the 27 Club. Speaking of the Rolling Stones, one of their founding members is also a member of the 27 Club. Brian Jones met Mick Jagger and Keith Richards when they attended the same school and the three formed a band. It was Brian who came up with their name, which was a tribute to another blues legend, Muddy Waters and his song, Rolling Stone. In the early hours of July 3, 1969, Brian's girlfriend Anna found his motionless body lying at the bottom of the swimming pool at his home in Hartfield, England. Anna insisted that he was alive and had a pulse when she managed to get him out of the pool, but by the time doctors arrived, he was dead. Since drugs and alcohol were believed to have been a factor, Brian's death at age 27 was classified as death by misadventure. The world of rock and roll was shaken by the passing of Brian Jones. During a live television performance, Jimi Hendrix dedicated a song to him, and Jim Morrison of The Doors wrote a poem about his late friend called Ode to L.A. while thinking of Brian Jones, deceased. Just a little more than a year later, 
Jimmy would join Brian in the 27 Club. Jimmy was, in my opinion, the single most influential musician of the 60s. This is the man who gave us gifts like All Along the Watchtower, Hey Joe, Voodoo Child, Purple Haze, The Wind Cries Mary, and one of my personal favorites, Bold is Love, just to name a few. The man was a genius, but his proclivity for living life on the edge was his undoing. In the early hours of Friday, September 18, 1970, Jimmy was winding down after an eventful day of drinking, smoking hash, and partying with his girlfriend who was named Monica Daneman. Jimmy had been having trouble sleeping for a while, and he and Monica had stayed up pretty much all night. At some point around 6 a.m., Jimmy decided to take a handful of Monica's sleeping pills, which turned out to be the powerful barbiturate Vesperax. The recommended dose for a man of his size was half a tablet, but Jimmy, never one to halfway do anything, swallowed nine. The combination of dumping 18 times the recommended dose of sleeping pills into a belly full of booze resulted in vomiting. Being that Jimmy was unconscious and couldn't turn himself over, he aspirated on the vomit and asphyxiated to death. The day before his death, Monica had taken photos of him having tea in a garden. There, Jimmy wrote a poem, the last one he would ever write. It was called The Story of Life. Just two and a half weeks later, the 27 Club claimed another legendary member. Singer Janis Joplin, whose unforgettable classics like Me and Bobby McGee and Peace of My Heart, spent her last days feeling abandoned and alone. She'd been staying at the Landmark Motor Hotel in Hollywood while working on an album, and although she'd become engaged to a man just a month earlier, he hadn't been real keen on visiting her. In fact, both her fiancé and a close friend had bailed on their promise to come visit Janice at the hotel on the night of October 2nd. They completely ghosted her. So the next night, October 3rd, Janice hit the studio where she recorded a poignant song called A Woman Left Lonely. After that, she had a drink at one of her favorite bars, Barney's Beanery on Santa Monica Boulevard. Then she returned to her room at the Landmark to spend the rest of the evening alone. Around 1 a.m. on the morning of October 4, 1970, Janice got out her heroin kit and shot up. She went to the hotel lobby and got a pack of cigarettes from a vending machine. She returned to her room, put the pack of cigarettes on the nightstand, and then stumbled, cracking her head on the table. She was found dead in her room the next day. Though some believe that her death was caused by the blow to her head, an autopsy later confirmed that she was killed by a heroin overdose. Nine months later, fellow poet, musician, and friend Jim Morrison joined the 27 Club. Jim was the provocative lead singer of The Doors, and if you don't know him by the tunes Come On Baby Light My Fire or Break On Through or Love Me Two Times, you'd probably recognize his face from the famous poster of him that's still offered as a prize by Carney's at that balloon-popping game every year at the county fair. After living the rock star life for a while, Jim decided to pursue his dream of becoming a serious poet. Shortly after he turned 27, he moved to Paris to work on his writing. He lived there with his girlfriend, Pamela Corson. It was Pamela who found Jim dead in their bathtub at 6 a.m. on July 3, 1971, exactly two years to the day that his friend Brian Jones had died. At the time in France, an autopsy was not mandatory, so one was not performed, but his cause of death was still listed as heart failure. However, eyewitnesses reported that Jim actually overdosed on heroin. 
The fact that he was in the bathtub at six in the morning lends credence to this, as it seems plausible that said eyewitnesses might have realized that Jim was ODing and put him in the bath in an attempt to revive him. In any case, Jim joined his friends Brian, Jimmy, and Janice in the afterlife that day. And in a bizarre twist, three years later, Pamela Corson also died of heroin overdose, and she was also 27. Jim Morrison's death was actually kept sort of quiet because of how closely it happened to Jimmy and Janice's. For this reason, and because the three were friends, I wanted to put them into sequence, but the 70s were really bad about taking lives of 27-year-old musicians, so the list for that decade isn't finished yet. Here are a few of the most recognizable members. Canned Heat was another famous band that played Woodstock in 1969. You'd probably know them best by their song, Going Up the Country. Guitarist Alan Wilson was responsible for some of the band's most recognizable riffs, but for all his talent, he had a few idiosyncrasies as well. One of them was sleeping outdoors for some unknown reason. On the morning of September 3, 1970, Canned Heat's lead singer, Bob Hyatt, walked outside and found Al asleep in his yard. Only, he wasn't asleep. Al's arms were crossed over his chest, and a bottle of Secanol lay at his side. An autopsy showed that his cause of death was barbiturate overdose. The Grateful Dead shared the stage with Canned Heat at Woodstock in 1969. The Dead was formed in 1964 by Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. Pigpen was talented but deeply troubled, having started drinking when he was only 12 years old. The years were not kind to him, and the rock star life was not conducive to sobriety. In fact, he and Janis Joplin were close friends who bonded over their love of booze. By the time he was in his mid-20s, Pigpen had developed cirrhosis of the liver, ulcers, and a myriad of health issues, which included congenital primary biliary cholangitis. The disease was not related to his drinking, but since it does affect the liver, drinking certainly did not help the situation. As he grew sicker, he cut off all personal relationships, telling his loved ones, quote, I don't want you around when I die. Pigpen died alone in his apartment near the San Francisco Bay on March 8, 1973, of a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. Iggy Pop and the Stooges are a band that's instantly recognizable. The Stooges' founding bassist, Dave Alexander, rivaled Iggy in outlandish behavior, if you can believe that. It was this behavior that caused Iggy to eventually fire him. In the years following, Dave battled drug and alcohol addiction and eventually developed pancreatitis and pulmonary edema, which killed him at the age of 27 in February of 1975. Badfinger is another quintessential rock band that has the distinction of being one of the few bands that the Beatles themselves signed onto their record label. Their song Baby Blue is one of my favorites, and it was written by lead singer Pete Ham. Pete also co-wrote the ballad, Without You, which was a worldwide hit, and for which he won two Ivor Novello Awards in 1973. From the outside looking in, it looked like Pete and Badfinger had it all. But in reality, Pete was dealing with some really serious issues. The band's manager had robbed them blind, and Pete and his bandmates were penniless. On top of that, he had a pregnant girlfriend and now had no way to support her and their baby. Unfortunately, Pete could only see one way out. On the night of April 24, 1975, he met his bandmate Tom Evans at a bar for drinks. As they discussed their dire situation, Pete said, quote, Don't worry, I know a way out. End quote. He then went home and hung himself in his garage. 
Pete was only three days shy of his 28th birthday. The story of Helmut Collin is especially sad given the seemingly innocent way he lost his life. Helmut was the basis for the German-based rock band Triumvirate. On May 3, 1977, Helmut did what a lot of us have done when returning home from a long day of work. He sat in his garage for a bit before going inside. While he sat there, he decided to listen to a cassette tape of some studio tracks that the band had just recorded. All that sounds fine and good, but the thing is, Helmut never turned his car engine off. As the garage filled with carbon monoxide coming from the car's engine, Helmut grew drowsy, fell asleep, and eventually died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Guys, I know we all know not to do this now, but Helmut's death is one of the reasons why. It was not always widely known that you could die of carbon monoxide poisoning if you sat in your car with the engine on in your garage. Helmut didn't know, and his death was a tragic, tragic accident. Another tragic accident happened to Chris Bell of Big Star. If you're a Memphian, you've probably heard of the band Big Star. The band was founded and formed and launched there, and Chris Bell's guitar style and vocals led the group to critical acclaim. In December of 1978, Chris was on his way home from band rehearsal when he crashed his car into a pole, and he was killed instantly. Gah, the 70s were rough on 27-year-olds, but the 27 Club continued to take new members on through the 80s and the 90s. Dennis Dale Boone, otherwise known as D. Boone, was a singer-guitarist with the group Minutemen. Minutemen were pioneers in hardcore punk rock, and some consider their music to be the precursor to grunge. Their 1984 album, Double Nickels on the Dime, was the defining contribution to the genre, as well as the decade. Their talent won over fans in the punk scene, as well as some famous artists like Michael Stipe, who invited them to open for R.E.M. on their North American tour. Just a few days after the Minutemen returned from that tour, D. Boone got sick. Despite the fact that he had a fever, he decided to travel with his fiancée, Linda, to Arizona to spend Christmas with her family. The two set out on December 22, 1985, but D. Boone was so sick that he decided to let Linda drive while he took a nap in the back of the van. As D. Boone slept and Linda drove, the rear axle of the van suddenly broke, causing it to flip through the air. The back door of the van came open, ejecting D. Boone and breaking his neck. D. Boone's death was also the end of the Minutemen. Echo and the Bunnymen were another very influential band of the time. They were a new wave band before new wave existed, and another punk band that laid the groundwork for alternative genres like grunge. They formed in England in 1978, and a couple years later, Pete DeFridis joined as their drummer. On June 14, 1989, Pete was driving his 900cc Ducati motorcycle in Staffordshire when he collided with another vehicle, and he was killed instantly. Now we're in the 90s, and grunge is officially a thing. The whole grunge movement started in Seattle with a grassroots approach to music. The whole idea was to create music that the locals loved and not to focus too terribly hard on commercial success. One of the most loved local bands at the time was a group called The Gits. Lead singer Mia Zapata stood out among the male-dominated grunge bands in Seattle. The Gits' first album, Frenching the Bully, brought local celebrity, but it was their upcoming second release that had them poised for international stardom. In the early morning hours of July 7, 1993, Mia left the Comet Tavern to visit a friend who lived about a block away. 
Mia didn't stay too long, and she didn't say where she was going afterwards. She put on her headphones and bid her buddy farewell, and that was the last time she was seen alive. Her body was found at a street intersection at around 3.30 a.m. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. Seattle's grunge community, including the bands Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, helped raise $70,000 to hire a private investigator to track down Mia's killer. Years went by with no breaks in the case, but saliva found in a bite mark on Mia's body was kept in cold storage, and in 2003, that evidence led to the arrest and eventually the conviction of Jesus Mesquia. Jesus had a long history of violence toward women, but it never caught up with him until he was arrested in 2002 for domestic abuse. At that point, his DNA was entered into CODIS, and it turned out to be a match for the DNA found in Mia's wounds. Jesus died in prison on January 21, 2021. Just nine months after Mia died, the grunge scene would suffer another devastating loss. Kurt Cobain, lead singer of Nirvana, was found dead in his home on April 8, 1994. It was estimated that he died three days earlier on April 5th of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. However, upon autopsy, it was discovered that Kurt had extremely high levels of heroin in his system, as well as Valium. So high, some said, that it would have rendered him immediately unconscious if not killed him. But if that was the case, how could he have shot himself? Well, since I'm just a lowly podcaster with no money to defend myself in court, should I be sued? I'm not going to speculate on that. But if you want it all laid out for you, let me suggest the 2015 film Soaked in Bleach. And that's all I have to say about that. At the time of his death, Kurt Cobain was married to Courtney Love, who was the lead singer for the band Hole. Kristen Pfaff was the bassist for Hole and a good friend of Kurt's as well. Just two months after his death, Kristen was also found dead, also at the age of 27, and also of heroin overdose. Grunge wasn't the only music that was big in the 90s. Rap was experiencing some of the biggest growth and popularity in its history as well. Randy Stretch Walker worked with some of the biggest names in the industry, like Shock G from Digital Underground and Tupac Shakur. He was also literally one of the biggest people in the industry, standing at 6 feet 8 inches tall, which is why they called him Stretch. In 1992, he, Tupac, and Big Psych recorded a song called Thug Life, which wouldn't be released until 1994. Not long after that, Tupac was convicted of sexual assault. He was released from prison in October of 1995, but with a very different view of Stretch. Apparently, he felt as though his former friend did not give him the support he needed during his various trials and tribulations. Pretty much as soon as Tupac was released, he recorded two tracks roasting Stretch and one that low-key described his death. Just six weeks later, on November 10, 1995, Stretch was gunned down in a drive-by shooting while on his way to attend a Biggie Smalls event. Once again, I'm not saying that the two are related. Given that Tupac would also be killed less than a year later, I am saying that the 90s rap scene could be a dangerous place if you cross the wrong person. (sighs) Welp, you might have thought that the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s might have taught musicians to steer clear of excess, at least until after their 28th birthday. But no. In 2011, we lost another musical genius. Amy Winehouse had long struggled with addiction issues. In fact, one of her biggest hits was a song called Rehab. 
Although she was young, long-term substance abuse had led to multiple health issues, including emphysema. It also led to a tumultuous personal life, which included broken relationships, violence, and lawsuits. In spite of her famous song, Amy eventually did go to rehab, but it seemed like her heart wasn't in it. On the afternoon of July 23, 2011, her bodyguard found her dead in bed. Toxicology showed her blood alcohol level at 0.416%, which is more than five times the legal drinking limit for driving. Her cause of death was acute alcohol poisoning. Whew, okay, that was a lot. It's been a while since the 27 Club has gotten a new musical member, so I'm hoping that future artists have learned lessons from their predecessors and will keep the shenanigans reined in or at least keep Narcan on hand. I'm not even really joking about that. I do believe that had Narcan been widely available in the 90s like it is today, we might not have lost some of the greatest musicians of my college years. I'm telling you, for a while there, it seemed like every time I turned around, someone who had sang along with at 2 a.m. at a frat house drop-in was dropping dead. It was truly an awful time. Which brings me to one final bit of macabre synchronicity. It's something they call the curse of the grunge singer also known as the Curse of My College Music Heroes. The Seattle grunge scene produced a ton of great bands, but there were five that were really considered to be the biggest. Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam. We've already talked about the deaths of Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, as well as fellow grunge rockers Kristen Pfaff and Mia Zapata all within a year of each other. Lane Staley, the crazy talented lead singer of Alice in Chains, also struggled with substance abuse. He died in 2002 of heroin and cocaine overdose. In a horrible footnote to how deeply drugs had taken over Lane's whole world, the coroner found that the six-foot, one-inch-tall singer only weighed 86 pounds at the time of his death. Scott Weiland, the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots, died on December 3, 2015. He and his band were on tour in Minnesota. They'd canceled their show for that night, but had plans to play the following night in Rochester. Unfortunately, Scott was found dead on his tour bus that night. An autopsy found his cause of death to be overdose from a combination of cocaine, MDA, and alcohol. This final one just about killed me. Chris Cornell, lead singer of Soundgarden, died just after midnight on May 18th of 2017. The night before, Chris had played a show at the MGM Grand in Detroit. The last song he sang was a cover of the Led Zeppelin song, In My Time of Dying. The lyrics go like this, quote, In my time of dying, I want nobody to mourn. All I want is for you to take my body home, end quote. When Chris finished the show, he went to his hotel room and called his wife, who became concerned after speaking with him. After they hung up, she called Chris's bodyguard and asked him to check on Chris. The bodyguard was unable to get Chris to answer the door and eventually became so alarmed that he had to break it down. There he discovered that Chris had hung himself. This one hit me especially hard. I saw Chris at Minglewood Hall in Memphis in 2011. He had a sore throat, but he guzzled a warm drink in between songs and he promised to sing until his voice broke, but it never did. He was simply amazing and such a bright soul. I remember exactly where I was when he died, too. I was in Costa Rica and sitting in a conference room when the news came across on my phone, and I just could not believe it. 
It just goes to show you that no matter what people show you on the outside, you never know what they're struggling with on the inside. So please always try to be kind if you can. Of the big five grunge bands, Eddie Vedder is the only lead singer left who's alive. I saw him solo in the Orpheum in the 2000s, and he seemed like a wonderful human as well. If anyone has any connections to Wells Fargo, please use them to send an armored truck to protect Eddie wherever he goes. The Curse of the Grunge Singer wasn't exclusive to Big Five bands, though. It also took Andrew Wood in 1990. Andrew was the lead singer of Mother Love Bone and was also roommates with Chris Cornell. Andrew died of a heroin overdose. Heroin also took Bradley Knoll of Sublime in 1995, and Shannon Hoon of Blind Melon died in 1995 of a cocaine overdose. Natasha Snyder was a keyboardist and vocalist for the band Eleven, but she also collaborated on albums with Chris Cornell and Queens of the Stone Age. If you're not familiar with Queens, they're another awesome band that Dave Grohl was once part of. Natasha stood out on the grunge scene not only because she was Russian and a woman, she was also significantly older than her American bandmates. Born in 1956, she was in her late 30s and early 40s when American grunge was in full force. Natasha was still fairly young, only 52, when she died in July of 2008 of cancer. As recently as 2018, we lost another grunge-era lead singer when Dolores O'Rourdon of the Cranberries died. Dolores was in London to meet with record executives about a possible new Cranberries album. While staying at the Hilton Hotel in Mayfair, it's believed that she consumed five mini bottles of champagne and then decided to take a bath. Her death was ruled as accidental drowning that was precipitated by alcohol intoxication. The Irish-born musician was only 46. Uh, well, I'm depressed, and I apologize if I've done the same to you. I never like to sign off on a bad note, so let me leave you with one last story about the supernatural and rock and roll. Earlier, I mentioned Barney's Beanery, which is a bar in Santa Monica. It was a favorite of both Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. Jim had always been vocal about his belief in the afterlife and the paranormal. He once told of a time when he was a young teen living in New Mexico. He said that while driving through the desert with his family, they passed by a car accident. There he saw the bodies of several Native Americans who'd perished in the wreck. It was then that he said that he felt the spirits of the dead natives enter his body. Those spirits would become his spirit guides and would become constant companions throughout his life. That's not to say that these spirit guides always did the best job at keeping Jim out of trouble. One night when he was hanging out at Barney's Beanery, Jim proceeded to drop trowel and take a whiz all over the bar. Barney's manager immediately threw him out, but later installed a plaque on the bar to commemorate the event. To be clear, the plaque doesn't say anything about taking a whiz. It just says, quote, Here sat Jim Morrison, poet, artist, legend, end quote. Among the many distinctive things about Jim Morrison, one was the fact that while in this particular bar, he almost always wore a white shirt. After his death, a ghost in a white shirt started showing up at Barney's. It's described as being a solid form, but never seen full on as it zips by people so fast that they can never get a glimpse of his face. This ghost has been seen dozens and dozens of times by everyone from restaurant managers to guests. Some have even attempted to follow it, but find themselves alone after giving chase. One manager told the LA Times that he saw the ghost more than 20 times in a whole year of working there. 
It was only after seeing the ghost many, many times did he realize that it wasn't actually a person because the motion sensor floodlights weren't tripped by it. He also saw it so clearly from a distance one time that he thought it was a robber. The haunting of Barney's is well documented. Barney's, the same place that Janice Joplin is believed to have had her last drink right before she headed back to her hotel and overdosed on heroin. Heroin, oh geez, what a demon of a chemical. It's taken way too many people. (sighs) I think I'm going to go wash off my makeup, rub some grease in my hair, and put on a pair of cargo shorts and a flannel shirt. And maybe some Doc Martin boots. Oh, who am I kidding? I'm already wearing all that and I haven't washed my hair in a week. No, no, I said that I wasn't going to leave this episode on a gloomy note. So let me try this again. George Harrison of the Beatles, who sadly passed away from cancer in 2001, was a very spiritual dude. He believed in the cyclic nature of life and in the possibility of reincarnation. He wrote a song called The Art of Dying, and it goes like this. There'll come a time when most of us return here, brought back by our desire to be a perfect entity, living through a million years of crying until you've realized the art of dying. What I think George is saying is that those who suffer in life will continue to be reborn and cycle through it until they reach a stage where they realize that perfection is not attainable and that earthly pain is temporary. Once this lesson is learned and they understand this, they can finally live a life of peace and tranquility. That makes sense, although I'm not sure a life of peace and tranquility is necessarily possible when you're also living the rock star life. I've never lived either one, but after rehashing the crazy lives and sometimes tragic ends of some of the most talented people ever to walk the planet, I'm content to live my boring, mediocre, talentless life. Thank you, Grandpa, for not giving me those talents. I always knew I was your favorite. Guys, as always, thanks for coming to hang out with me today. I hope you'll join me next time, same place, for a little more history and a little more haunt. See you then. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much. It's everything. If you haven't already, please go follow us on Instagram at Podcast. And if you want to be the most helpfulest, please go leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's something weird or creepy or strange that you'd like me to investigate and report back to you on, drop me an email at oddityproddity at gmail.com. That's O-D-D-I-T-Y-P-O-D-D-I-T-Y at gmail.com. See y'all next time.